Hey, welcome to the past. I'm so pleased you've downloaded this fifth episode of Tales from Tudor Times. This podcast is a companion to my series of romantic suspense books with time travel twists. There's so much history that doesn't fit into a novel, and that's where this historical tidbits cast comes in. If you haven't already done so, stop by Amazon and pick up the first of these novels, Tangled in Tudor Times. If you're a member of Kindle Unlimited, you can read the ebook version for free. And for Prime members, shipping the paperback version is also free. This episode is Embroidery, A Stitch in Tudor Time. After the undercarriage work, the chambermaid Hannah slid a daffodil-colored undergown over my hooped farthingale. The yellow gown had pleated heels of smocking, stitched down in a delicious pattern of tight black thread chains. Its neckline was edged with geometric blackwork, one of my favorite embroidery patterns. On top of the undergown went a bell-shaped skirt, bodice, and sleeves, all in forest green wool. Cleverly constructed slashes showed off the embroidered yellow silk below. Finally, Ginevra popped a black silk call threaded with seed pearls onto my head. I felt just like a Tudor cake topper. You've just heard an excerpt from Tangled in Tudor Times. Does it leave you wanting more? Let's talk about Tudor embroidery. First, what is embroidery? How is embroidery different from tapestry work? Why were Tudors drawn to this art form? And who embroidered in the Elizabethan era? Then, let's consider Tudor embroidery inspiration. Finally, I'll share more about Bella Salas's visit to Tudor times as she shares her experiences with 16th century embroidery and some Tudor time team effort to prepare a chamber for a visit from Queen Elizabeth I. By the way, the Tudors reigned from 1485 to 1603. When I refer to the Elizabethans or the Elizabethan era, I'm talking about the period between 1558 and 1603, when the last Tudor monarch, Elizabeth I, was on the throne. What's embroidery? Fabric, thread, and technique. Embroidery is the product of thread stitched through fabric. This stitching forms a decorative design on material used for clothing, soft household furnishings like cushions, wall hangings, and other embellished pieces like church lecterns. Who embroidered in the Tudor era? English embroidery reached a high point in the 16th century. If you were a woman of the gentry class and above, you were expected to be a skillful needlewoman. The Tudor embroideries I've seen in books and museums have been intricately worked, heavily thread-filled designs, the product of extremely skillful makers. Needlewomen in the gentry class, professional broiderers, which included men as well as women, and high-ranking nobility. But the richness of these pieces is probably what helped them survive. It doesn't mean that people in those times didn't embroider the simple equivalent of a lazy daisy or a French knot. However, from the stories we're told in letters, memoirs, and information that's simply been passed along, our historical impression is that a majority of amateur needlewomen had embroidery skills few have today. Let's talk more about the stitchery. Decorations were worked in silks, yarns, and metal threads. Sometimes the maker incorporated beads, feathers, pearls, and spangles, 
and that would be what today you probably call sequins, on wool, silk, and linen. Common stitches were satin and split stitches, worked in silk, and that would mean using silk. They worked in silk, they used silk thread. On a silk ground, and that means the fabric you stitched your silk thread through was also silk. Tent, cross, and goblin stitches were stitched, or as we just said, worked, right on a piece of linen mesh that allowed the crafter to count her stitches. Henry VIII's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, popularized Spanish work, which was also known as black work. Now, some fashion historians make a big deal out of reminding people that British needlewomen knew about black work before Catherine came to England from Spain. Jeez, let's just give poor Catherine some well-deserved attention, huh? She had to put up with good King Hal's antics for the last part of her life, for which she deserves some slack. She even kept making his shirts for him after he dumped her for Elizabeth's mom, Anne Boleyn. Now I'm going to quote briefly from a Victorian Albert, or as you know, I've mentioned other other podcasts, that's the Victorian Albert Museum, which is called the V&A. So I'm going to quote briefly from a V&A essay that I'll be noting the title of below. And I'm sorry, but I could not find the uh, author for this essay. Another thing that uh, we know about Tudor embroideries is that they were polychrome. Multicolored silks were often worked in a greater variety of stitches, sometimes including three-dimensional or raised effects, like a, a, you know, what I would call a French knot and embroidery today, that would be a raised effect. These embroiders were very English in character, coiling stems with floral motifs, roses, carnations, honeysuckle, and other typically English flowers interspersed with birds and beasts, caterpillars and butterflies, and these formed the basis of the most popular designs. And you can find more online in this great article called Introduction to English Embroidery, and you would go to the Victorian Albert or V&A Museum to find that article. Now, sometimes people will confuse embroidery with tapestry work. So how is embroidery different from tapestry work, which is another creative form associated with this period? As a matter of fact, Henry VIII had the second largest collection of tapestries in, in the known world, and he passed those tapestries on to his three children who you know, reigned at different times. Uh, we'll, we'll just say who they were. Edward, uh, then Mary, then Elizabeth. They inherited his huge tapestry collection. So let's not confuse embroidery with tapestry making, which was also popular in Tudor England, though few people could afford tapestries. Embroidery is stitched. Tapestry makes use of woven threads that are knotted on the reverse side. A tapestry is made by repeatedly weaving the horizontal threads, of course we call those the weft threads, over and under the vertical, which of course we call the warp threads. And then the horizontal threads, the weft threads, the ones that go across, those are kind of smashed or pushed over so that they're really, really close together in the, and they make the design so you can't see what's behind. Uh, you know, you can't see the knots behind. Uh, and it takes a really long time. You know, it's just very labor intensive. Tapestries were a big expensive deal in the Tudor era. To this day, real tapestries are still something only extremely wealthy people can afford. 
And I'm going to go off on a slight tangent. If you ever get to visit Madrid in Spain, or you might pronounce it Madrid, I recommend that the, you take the tour of the tapestry factory there. It's a centuries-old, uh, I don't even know if you call it a business. It is a business, but it's a place. A lot of it is supported by the royal family. And they have limited tours each week, some in English and some in Spanish, so you need to check ahead depending on which language you'd rather hear the tour in. But you will see people making tapestries and fixing tapestries, and I don't know if there are any other places in the world where you can see that. End of tangent. Why was embroidery so popular during the Elizabethan era? Perhaps because the economy was improving and upper-class people had a little more time to make beautiful things. Now, this is my own idea. It was improving. I know that about the economy. But whether or not there's a direct connection to embellishment, I don't have any proof. I just know that what you wear is a great way to enjoy yourself. Decorating your clothes makes life even better. Prints make fabric beautiful, though. But textile printing, including pretty designs on the surface of your fabric, was challenging for Europeans because their dyes, their, you know, their fabric dyes, weren't fast. Now, fast is a term we still heard even in my own 20th century childhood when we talked about materials that didn't hold or keep their color. Remember, the Tudor era ended with Elizabeth I's death in 1603. In those times, printed textiles, though common in the East and Islamic worlds, where they had better fabric dyes, those dyes were rarely available, and those textiles were rarely available in England. It wasn't until the 1630s, so that would be 27 years after Queen Elizabeth I died, died, D-I-E-D, not, not to be confused with dyeing fabric. So it wasn't until the 1630s when the East India Company started importing printed cottons into England that printed fabric then became more generally available. By the 1660s, so now 57 years after Queen Elizabeth died, British workmen began to use new techniques for dyeing and textile printing that made designs and fabric colors fast, but all that hadn't yet arrived in the Elizabethan era. Where did Elizabethan embroiderers get their inspiration? I wish I could remember where I read that someone said, an appreciation for nature was something newly found during the English Romantic era in the 19th century. And anybody who's ever stitched a rose on a t-shirt knows that can't be true. After a trip to the V&A, followed by a three-day spring, spring walk along Hadrian's Wall, I couldn't help but realize where the inspiration for the sleeves, pockets, and embroidered gloves I'd seen at the V&A Museum's British galleries had come from. After 450 years, the same wildflowers I'd seen made up into elaborate stitchery projects were growing everywhere I walked. Eglantine and damask roses, butter and eggs, bluebells, native yellow primroses and gorse, and that's just to name a few, the ones that I can remember seeing. I just know there were flowers everywhere, and those are the same things that I saw embroidered on these antique garments. But what if you were a needlewoman who couldn't draw a straight line? Or perhaps you were a professional broiderer, and those are the ones where both men and women uh, were involved in that, uh, uh, that job, whose customers expected elaborately detailed graphics in their uh, 
you know, embroidered goods that they had maybe around the house or in clothing that they wore. Books of designs were an early product of William Caxton's printing press. The intricately stylized designs that Lady Hobie noticed in the cushion cover her friend Maisie was hemming came from a broiderer's workshop. And the, these professionals would have consulted just such artistic pattern books as we've just talked about that came off Caxton's printing press. What? You haven't yet met Lady Hobie or her friend? Pop right on into Amazon and purchase Tangled in Tudor Times by L.R. Scheimer. There's also a link in your podcast app's description box. Another person who is still today well-known for her embroidery and who had access to designs from various printed sources was Mary, Queen of Scots. During her long captivity in England, you know, she was Elizabeth's uh, prisoner, she, her ladies, and her English companion jailer, Bess of Hardwick, the Countess of Shrewsbury, and also with some help from professionals, produced a massive amount of highly decorated panels many of which still exist. You can see them at the V&A, you can see them other, other places, and I believe that the uh, royal family has some of them. There's a great article about this work online and with lots of pictures. In an article also from the V&A, you know, I do read articles from other places like the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It just happens that the two I'm mentioning here are both from the V&A. And that article you can search on is The Prison Embroideries of Mary Queen of Scots. And then also put in, you know, Victoria and Albert or V&A. And my two favorite designs of, that, of hers that have survived and are shown in this article are the dolphin and one called a bird of America. And bird is spelled B-Y-R-D. And I think it's a pelican. Pelicans are my favorite bird. As we wrap things up, I'm going to share more from L.R. Scheimer's Tangled in Tudor Times. In this scene, Bella shares more of her experiences in a 16th century embroidery project as she helps prepare soft furnishings for Queen Elizabeth the First's firsts, that's a hard word to say, for Queen Elizabeth the First's chamber. I stole a glance at Lettuce's stitchery. She was fashioning a pattern of bulrushes in metallic gold and olive green threads on a background of Nile green sarsenet. On the other side of the passageway, Ginevra was adorning stiff cream-colored silk with brilliant red and yellow pomegranates. In my teenage years, I'd spent my time studying calculus, operating systems protocols, and mapping theory. In their own time, Lettuce and Ginevra had been honing their skills with a needle, learning how to use gilt thread and create precise goblin and Spanish blackwork tent stitches. Embroidery was a hobby for me, but they had worked on it daily since they were young girls. My lack of experience showed. Having taken one look at the work I'd been doing on clothes from the household mending basket, our new project lead, Ginevra, immediately declared that Lady Isabella can do the plain sewing for Her Majesty's ladies. With a sigh, I returned to hemming a finely woven, but indeed very plain, white linen sheet. Want to hear more about Bella's visit to the Elizabethan era? Tangled in Tudor Times is available at Amazon.com as either an ebook or a paperback. And remember, Prime members get free shipping. And for Kindle Unlimited customers, it's free. Look for Tangled in Tudor Times on Amazon.com by clicking on the link in your podcast app description. Or search Amazon for L.R. Scheimer or Tangled in Tudor Times. And if you're wondering about leaving a review, please do. Reviews help me move up in the Amazon queue so that more people will see this book.
see you in the 16th century. <laughs>